for the next while and I think maybe for the life of this podcast (laughs) and actually maybe even all the podcasts that have come before when I was calling this podcast Family Health Revolution and now it's your health revolution and I'm thinking I might go back to Family Health Revolution but I don't want to mess with you too much but the reason why I did that and made that change was to expand the um, the scope of the podcast. So it's not just about kids, right? Because whenever someone sees the name family or the, the word family, they think it's all about kids and parenting. And yeah, some of it is. But when I say family, I'm also talking about siblings. And I'm also talking about parents and elders and all different um, ages, stages of life. But in a way that connects us all by way of being a family, being a pod, being a soul pod, being a community, and how important that um, configuration, that, uh, you know, that that soul pod, I guess I'll say that again, that uh, connection and unit, okay, let's use the word unit, (laughs) Um, how important that is. Uh, for our health and how being in that family structure, whether it be two people, four people, like whatever structure that might be, what you would consider family, um, how important that is in our health in general. So the next few podcasts, and like I said, probably for the life of this podcast, I'm, I'm actually really focusing more and more and more on changing a consciousness. And I'm going to do a podcast about the shift method, because I think that's really, really important. That's going to come out, I don't know when it's going to come out, probably, you know, the next few weeks or whatever. But I've got four podcasts to release before that one, because they're all recorded and ready to rock. Um, and this one today, I wanted to start shifting at consciousness or the thought about, um, you know, how we view our, I guess, our um, place or our role in what happened in our health history, what happens in our children's health history. And, um, you know, what about what was in our lives that, you know, we how we were influenced by our parents, grandparents, etc. And so, Um, A lot of times there's some massive guilt when you start to realize your part in that. And that can hinder us from the discovery process. And I understand, you know, when people go there, I I totally get it. (laughs) I totally get it. Um, Yet if we can't look at it, we tend to err on the side of denial, um, maybe even anger. Like, what do you mean? Like, I I had nothing to do with that. Um, and then guilt, shame, all those things that are going to lead us down a path to not of discovery, but of, I guess, covering up, um, deflection, um, you know, protection rather than growth. So this topic for today, this topic for this session today is what if I did, what if what I did was wrong? recognizing and letting go of the guilt of doing what you were told was best for your child. And so I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to the Family Health Revolution podcast with Coach Carla Atherton, where she discovers, uncovers, explores, and reveals the secrets to true family health and wellness.
So I don't know how long this one's going to be, but I'm winging this sucker. And it's only because I don't want to have it contrived and, and organized in a way that is linear, because this is in no way a linear conversation. And what I'm talking about today is this question of what if what I did was wrong? Recognizing and letting go of the guilt of doing what you were told was best for your child. And I think this topic needs to be blown wide open because I think that guilt and shame keep us from getting to the truth because it can first lead us to denial, right? Like I didn't do anything wrong. And then that's just going to keep us doing things that weren't so good. And when we can't look at something that we now deem to be, that wasn't the best thing, Um, If we can't look at that, it's not about facing it and it's like, oh, let it slap you in the face. No, it's not about, you know, beating yourself up and being punished. And, you know, I think in our culture, we do um, see like or think that punishment is the natural consequence of a mistake. It's not. I, I, I even when my kids are growing up, I was like, oh, well, I'm all for natural consequences. Like you touch the fire, your, your finger might get burned or you, you know, go out without your mitts and your hands are going to get cold. You know, I'm all for that. That's a part of learning. But I'm not for and I never have been for punishment. Like you did this wrong, you get punished. Well, then people stop learning. They stop exploring. They stop trying to push limits or become limitless they stop looking for possibilities and they fall back to fear um, about backlash consequences um, punishment and they have a sense of shame denial guilt all of those things are pretty yucky (laughs) and I'm not saying that they're not natural emotions I mean of course they are You know, like, I mean, if I do something terrible to someone, I'm pretty sure I'm going to be ashamed of it. But I think shame is such a pervasive um, emotion in our society that it's, it has, it's not a teacher anymore when we get stuck in it. It doesn't teach us anymore. Like at first it will say, okay, look, that, that you should not, you shouldn't feel good about that. You know, that was something that you did that probably you shouldn't do again. And that's the lesson learned. And was there any, um, you know, making amends that you need to do? Was there any apology that you need to make? Was there any, was there any repair or reconnection you needed to instigate and catalyze and, and pursue with maybe someone you did something wrong to, or, and I hate using the words right and wrong, but I'm just going to use it right now. Um, or not correct or hurtful or harmful Um, and so that's important, but again, if we get stuck in that shame, denial, um, sometimes people even get angry when things are brought up that, you know, they feel guilty about because it's a defense mechanism. It's, it just keeps you stuck in, um, trying to protect yourself when really the, I don't know if the word is answer, the answer could lie in just facing it and saying, wow, I wish I'd never done that. And I'm not going to do that again. I am sorry about that. Or I'm moving on or I want us to reconnect. And I, you know, will you trust me? I want to regain trust, whatever that is. 
um, or, you know, see it as like, ooh, that's where this started. Let's repair that. Because then we can move on. We can heal. We can actually become stronger because of those quote unquote mistakes, because of those things that we wished we wouldn't have, wouldn't have done. And I mean, it's over, it's done. So now what, right? What now? And you will not ask that question of what now, if you can't face what then, (laughs) what happened then, if we can't do that. And that's a tall order. I mean, I'm not saying it's, it's a cakewalk and I'm going to give you an example in just a second, but, um, I think it's in that recognition that we can let go of the guilt. Um, and the topic was, is really specifically the guilt of doing what you were told was best for your child. Um, because that's usually where that comes from. Like, even if something like spanking, maybe, you know, used to do, used to spank your kids or yell at them or something, or could have been a slip up, or it could have been something you learned from the past, or it could have been your inability to control your own emotions. It could have been something that happened to you. Um, so it's not always what we were told, but what we viewed, what we experienced, what we were indoctrinated into or conditioned into through cultural just observation, you know, immersion in, in, in our own um, cultures and communities and family systems. And sometimes it is what we're told was best from the medical system, from the school system, like the education system, from our government. And these larger systems, foster systems, social systems, um, generally speaking, are a sloppy second, very distant to being the authority on your own life and on your own raising of your own children, your own relationship with your children. And so sometimes our instinct has been dumbed down. Um, and I'll, I'll give you a story. Okay. So when my son was a wee guy and he was still, I don't know, I, he was a baby. He was probably like eight months old and he was very clingy. Like he, he always wanted to be held. He wasn't an unhappy baby, but he wanted to be with mom all the time. And so I had a hard time like being away from him for any moment, like, you know, stretch of time. And at, in that moment, I remember my cousin actually saying this to me, not in this moment, but my cousin said to me, the day, and this is like a famous quote, and I have no idea where it comes from, but I remember she was, she told me this quote initially. Um, when you're parenting, okay, so the days are long, but the years are short. And so, isn't that true? So at that time, I was like really just needing him to, I don't know, self-soothe a little bit, uh, be able to be alone, go to sleep on his own. And he just would not do that. Like, he was literally born and then he lived on my breast for his breastfeeding years, like literally just like, and then, you know, it, like very much so. And I know what that was now. And I'm going to tell you that this revelation through the years of uh, my pursuit of not just knowledge, but wisdom about parenting. I'm going to tell you that in just a second. 
But he was very clingy. He, and I, I guess the word, yeah, I guess the word could be clingy. He didn't want me to leave. He, if I was to put him down for a nap or his dad, or even if his auntie was, you know, babysitting him or something, um, he would literally, he would fall asleep and you'd sneak out of the room. You had to lay with him and you'd sneak out of the room. And the second you'd get up, he would sit right up, bolt up. And it was just like, losing battle. I, I stopped giving him naps and I just started putting him to bed super early just so that he would have time to sleep and I would have time just to like, okay, <laughs> I'm, you know, I'm just by myself. What do I want to do? I want to write my papers. I want to, you know, like do my work on my business. I want to go for a walk, you know? Um, and we need that. That's okay. But I remember that, I mean, from the get-go, we were told things like in the hospital, you know, you need to have him on a sleep schedule and you wake him up when, you know, so that he's eating well, so he gains weight and totally screwed up his sleep cycle. And, um, this is the story I wanted to say. Okay. So what I learned throughout my pursuit of wisdom about parenting was that when that child is born, that birth story has a huge impact on their life. And that has a lot to do with the nervous system, the development of their nervous system, the stress level, and that's, you know, the cause of that is the stress level of the parent, uh, the birth story, you know, if they were caught in the, you know, birth canal or if they were C-section, if they were able to have skin-to-skin contact once they were born with their parents, if they shared their parents' microbiome through touch or through passing through the vaginal canal, Um if, you know, what the environment was like, what they were born into, the lighting, the the voices, the energy in the room, like everything that that birth story or that birth experience, in that birth experience, everything matters. And, and you can see echoes of it in adults, people throughout their lives. There are lots of things you can heal. There are lots of things that people do like rebirthing and they do breath work and they do trauma release and all kinds of beautiful things. They do emotion code, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, But those were things I'd learned throughout the years after the fact. But at the time, okay, before I knew that his birth story led to him feeling unsafe and pushed out into the world when he was not ready. He was two and a half weeks early. Uh, the reason why he was born early is because I had polyhydramnios, and that means I had extra um, amniotic fluid, which put enough pressure on the sac around him that it it broke my water too early. And so he was born not premature, but he was small for what he would have been had he gone the whole way, right, to that finish line. So two and a half weeks early, he was six pounds, 12 ounces. He wasn't ready to be out in the world yet. And that affected him through his infancy, not necessarily through his adulthood. This, this man is, is an independent man. <laughs> um, my, my man son, I call him. <laughs> and, um, but his early years were, it was hard for him to be away from me. And I had to surrender to it. I couldn't, and instinctually, I didn't know, I was reading some stuff, but I mean, 
a lot of it was the drivel that most people read what they're expecting. And I would, I just throw those, threw those books away. Like those are just not good books. Um, so like I said, you know, letting go of the guilt of what you were told was best for your child. No. Sleep training, letting them cry. Uh, I'm just going to openly say those are damaging and unnecessary. What I did learn from new communities that I started to run with and and people who were way ahead of me in this wisdom path that were, you know, feeding their kids more naturally and were, you know, potty training them in the yard without any underwear on and just a little sundress and, you know, carrying them around with them as much as they wanted in slings and satiating their needs and just being with their children. And I started doing this instinctually after I decided, and before I met these people, after I decided that no, that day when he was eight months old, he, I put him to bed and I was like, okay, I got, I mean, what should we do, hon? And I'm talking to my husband. He said, just go for a walk. He'll be fine. He cried the whole time I went for that walk. And I came back and I said, I'm not doing this. I picked him up and I held him and he went to sleep. And then it, I just, you know, I stopped and I, I stopped doing that from that day and I never did it again. And so what I, two things that happened that day, first was that I did damage and I know I did. And I had to look at that, the shame, the guilt. Um, I still to this day want to cry. And I, maybe I got to work on that. Maybe I got to let that go. Or maybe it's okay if I feel that emotion come up because I know that I literally reinforced his fear that I wasn't going to be there, that he wasn't ready to let go. He wasn't ready to go to sleep. And actually Gordon Newfeld talks about sleep with children when they have sleep problems, that sometimes it's a fear of the little death. They call sleep the little death. And that is um, where you are actually um, detached from the tribe, which the heads of that tribe, the, the anchors, the people that keep you safe are your parents. And so kids wander around and they say, I gotta, I need a drink. And can I watch this one more movie with you and all this stuff? And it's because they're circling and they don't want to be detached. And that's not a bad thing. That is a survival mechanism. And for me to see the beauty in that and to surrender to it, not that I, you know, you let your kids stay up all night. And And Gordon Neufeld actually talks about this too, where the the way to go about it is not to say, oh, yes, yes, you can stay up whatever time you want. And this is all just fine. I mean, we have life to live and you need to sleep, (laughs) you know, like this is, you know, and we need to move past this fear. Um, It's more about, so, so you sing in, in older cultures, like thousands and thousands of years, we've been doing this as a species, singing to your children, the lullaby going through the sadness of separation, but in a healthy way where literally you're holding that child's hand and moving them into the afterworld, into the slumber world, um, and slowing it down into a sadness, into a sadder cadence, which is part of not only grief. So this isn't grief we're talking about here. Sadness is a part of letting go. It is the precursor to letting go. So 
had I known this, I would have been able to put more words to the experience that I was having. But my, my conclusion was the same. No, I'm not doing this. I'm not doing this. I don't care what people told me to do and that this is better for the child. And you need, you know, like it's all taking the nature and the intuition out of the equation. No, I said hard pass. Thank you. I'm never doing that again. So like I was saying, two things happened that day. I, I learned, well, I said, no, I'm not going to do that again. And I also did damage. And I know that it took a while for his trust to be regained and for his sense of security to take hold in his world again. And it took years to do that. So that's my little example. And, um, I have others and I also have other examples where I know that when I um, started to question what people were telling me that was best for my child, I think questioning, I know questioning is essential and it doesn't mean that you poo-poo everything anybody's ever told you when you say, I know everything and blah, blah, blah. Like we have people that are trusted in our communities. We have elders and mentors ourselves as parents. We like, like I was saying, like a Naomi Aldort says, we are parenting ourselves. And so had I not read or engaged in the work of these people, these brilliant, wise wisdom keepers that were ahead of me in this path, um, blazing the trail or reminding me of what my instincts are, already are and to go with those um had I not done that I wouldn't have I wouldn't have upped my game and if I wasn't if I wasn't able to look at what made me feel shameful or what I feel I did wrong I wouldn't I wouldn't be able to move ahead and do better another time was my when my daughter was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes and I've talked about this story a few times and it's all good. Like, you know, it's, it's a, it's a story that, um, really was a defining and not a defining moment in our lives. That's not even, I mean, I think like there are millions of defining moments in your life, but it was a, it was a significant event. And when that happened, I literally like moved into, I got this mode. Like I was like, I got this and we're going to reverse this. I'm going to learn everything I know, everything I could learn. And my, you know, the doctors really had zero answers and I knew they were wrong, like literally wrong about much of what they were telling us. And I instinctually knew this. And this was before I had really dug into health, like really dug in. I started to, one of my best friends was a naturopath I had, you know, a few years before that stopped eating gluten because I got like, well, I'm just going to say I got fat. And I, and I was like 35 pounds heavier than I'd ever been in my life in my mid thirties. And I had sore joints and I, I, um, I went off gluten. I lost all the weight in like a month and a half and my joint pain went away and I would have been on meds and all kinds of stuff. Now, I don't even know what kind of mess I would have been, would have been in at this point, but Um, so when I knew this, like I knew that this wasn't the, the end, it wasn't even the beginning. It was, it was literally finality, you know, like told to me and said, I'm sorry, 
you know, but this is what you're going to have to do. And this is how many carbs are in, you know, McDonald's burger and like donuts and stuff. And I was like, well, I'm probably not going to be feeding my child those foods if she has type one diabetes, but thanks. So I knew that there was something wrong with that. And I think a lot of parents, they have, I mean, they have the instinct, but they don't know where to turn to for support and to find the wisdom that is missing in a systemized culture, a medicalized culture, um, a pill for nail culture, um, a culture that says that, you know, dis-ease happens out of the blue and we can't control that. So it's tough, okay? So when you get a diagnosis like that, and I don't even use diagnoses anymore, I'll tell you that in another episode but when you get a final verdict like that and you start learning that there's a reason for everything like there's causality there is something that led up to this actually a combination of things you start and I I started learning well this is where I started my path to where I am today as far as like what I'm doing with my work okay and that's like looking at the functional medicine piece, you know, so like what the causes were, what the stressors in her environment were, what could have happened. And so that could lead us back to shame, guilt, you know, despair, fear, all that stuff. If we're not able to look at that, those causal factors objectively and understand that the only pursuit for finding causality is so that we can make it better for the future so that we don't keep making the mistakes of the past it's not so that we can live in the past and blame ourselves and hate ourselves for what we didn't know it's for the knowing to lead us to something better so I knew that when we built our house we built it green um, and she was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes a, a year after we moved here almost exactly. And when we, we built our house green, it was one of the first things I wanted to do, like that was super important to me was to have a clean house that would just fall into the earth, you know, like instead of being full of like junk and garbage and chemicals and stuff that was making us sick on the inside, you know, and, and we live on this beautiful piece of land and we worked bloody hard for that like brought this place here stick by stick and built it largely ourselves with maybe I don't know four extra people that we hired on occasion to do a couple of things and one person two people in particular helped us help me and my husband when he was off work half time not half time part of the time um build it every single day so that's another story <laughs> I worked three quarter time with three homeschooled kids and built and 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 uh contracted this house and it's like I'm so proud of it I don't even care I'll brag my head off it was it's just it's something else this story uh can you hear me smiling okay so when that so we built this house and I I really dug into the research about building a clean and green home and we were going to do straw bale we we're going to do all this kind of stuff and then we we're like no that's just too much at the very end, we had trouble with the poor of 
the the concrete over top of the in-floor heat we had. We had um, in-floor photovoltaic heat system. And what happened was the pour was bad. So we, we wanted to polish it and then leave it raw, but we couldn't because it didn't look good. So, and we were also told by someone that we had to seal it before we were to do anything else with it. Like even if we were going to cover it with, you know, any sort of flooring and stuff. So we did that. Okay. So the second we did that, I thought, oh my God, I poisoned us. I polluted our green home, which I know to this day we did. And I felt grief. I felt sorrow. I felt loss. I felt panic. I felt like literally it's like we can't go back because we put this stuff on our floor and it took four months for the smell to start leaving. It was good that we didn't move in right away. But the problem was that when we did move in, it still had a residue of smell and we had the windows open all the time. But then once we moved in, it was winter and our air exchange wasn't good enough because there wasn't something in every bedroom, okay, that was exchanging air. There was a main one upstairs, main one on the main floor. The guys that did the mechanical actually kind of like cheaped out and we didn't realize that we needed to do those other things. Um, so... The smell would pool in my daughter's room in particular, okay? So that's one thing that I just actually makes me kind of sick to my stomach to think about that and her exposure. Um, even after months of off-gassing the house, and that probably lasted about a year. And um, again, trying to keep doors open, windows, la la la, but it's just not good enough when you have something that potent. We also found couple years later there was mold growing in her bathroom once she moved downstairs which wasn't that long like she was probably about I don't know if she was 13 or so when she moved down to the basement so her bathroom had mold and um, I think there might have been mold in the windowsills probably not that long after we moved here before she was diagnosed with type 1 because um, the windowsills weren't really done properly or they weren't finished by the guys who were doing the um the wallboard and they never really dried properly like not at first so I feel like there was some kind of mold exposure there so there were other things as well that I feel like I contributed to this diagnosis for her body to say screw you, this is too much, something's out of whack here, right? So again, if I wasn't able to look at that, and if I lived with that guilt and said, this is my fault, I can't help her. I can't, I can't lead. I can't, I would be, I'd be crippled with the guilt. And I, and I, and I can't, and I tell this to parents, you can't actually beat yourself up over not knowing what you didn't know. And especially if you were told something different, especially if when you were being told that, you could have been being bullied or told you're wrong or moms don't know anything or doctors know better, the principal knows better than you do. 
if this is the culture that you were and or family system you were born into, it does take a bit of an awakening to first see that stuff, then be able to um, address it and face it and look at it honestly, then to grieve and to go through that process of like, hey, I'm not never doing that again. I feel really bad. I'm sorry. I've got to make amends. I've tried to, you know, and not in a panicky way to repair, but a natural more way of saying, okay, what now? You know? So when you're in that position, um, I just want to tell parents that it's important to always ask questions, to think critically, to hone your intuition and to trust it when you hit the, hit that, that, the gold hit the oil <laughs> when you're tapping and into the earth, you know, into your own empowerment. And that's just the only way to be able to move, move forward and move your family deeper into their own expression of health. So be loving to yourself. Um, you know, reparent yourself. Fill your cup. Um, take breaks you know, think about things before you make a decision, critically think about everything that comes your way, explore, but then know when to stop and to integrate, right? When to get clear on something, when to make, you know, find the patterns in the chaos, you know, just know when to stop and when enough's enough and when to just let things go that happened in the past so that you can make room for the future, so as I say in every, well, at least this string of podcasts that I'm talking about the family and remembering the family and returning to tradition and reclaiming our children from the pop culture trance, um, you know, really strengthening the family and, um, you know, not going down the road of outsourcing our own health and taking back the reins, just keep an eye on more things that I will be um, offering up through my websites, through my um, other podcasts that I have published, uh, through my writings on Brains Magazine, in Brains Magazine online, uh, through my Patreon membership where I have um, some audio coaching, some videos, some, I don't know, all kinds of stuff on there. Uh, all the kinds of creations and creative work and uh, really with the mission and intention of changing a consciousness and moving our consciousness from, you know, outsourcing our health to finding that health within and teaching our children to do that as well. So I hope you enjoyed this and have a good day. This podcast is sponsored by the Healthy Family Formula, which essentially means that we share our information for free. For more support, community, audio coaching, full episodes, bi-monthly live Q&A, discounts on our group coaching programs, and more, become a patron of my work at patreon.com slash Carla Atherton. Before you move on to the next hundred things on your to-do list for today, take what you learn and instead of waiting until Monday, January 1st, or any other arbitrary date in the future, 
act on it now. Buy that new food, start that new routine, shift into that healthier habit. The little steps steadily move you past the miles you leave behind you. For more information about anything related to family health, do pick up my book, Family Health Revolution, and check out our newsletter, blog, individual and group coaching programs, and practitioner training program at healthyfamilyformula.com. You can also like our Facebook page, facebook.com slash healthy family formula. You can find us on Instagram at HFF underscore revolution and on Clubhouse at Empowered Family. Oh, 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 oh,